The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to this program about Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. Our topic for discussion today is um, uh, a dilemma that has arisen over the past couple of months, and it has to do with the medication called Menda and the XR form of that, and we'll explain all of that to you in just a little bit, but um, Namenda um, is keeping uh, up with demand right now, and so there's a lot of confusion uh, about what people should be doing to try to uh, uh, continue to access the medication or to find some other alternative. So, just by way of background and and uh, to introduce the nature of this problem to you, let me present the following. Um, the Menda was originally approved by FDA in October 2003, and it was for the treatment of moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. It's uh, pharmacological uh, uh action is to block a receptor that is associated with excitotoxicity. In other words, so much excitement of a neuron that um, uh, there's a massive calcium influx and that results in death of the neuron. So, Namenda was designed to protect against that excitotoxicity by blocking a specific receptor called the NMDA receptor. It was approved in a 5 milligram and 10 milligram form, and the usual prescribing involves starting at 5 milligrams and gradually building up to 10 milligrams twice per day. And I might add that last year, sales of the 5 and 10 milligram forms of Namenda um, accumulated to about $1.5 billion. So this has been a very widely used and a very heavily used drug. Namenda was introduced by Forest Laboratories and um, in um, the past several months, um, Forest was bought out, uh, actually in July of this year, was bought out by a company called Actavis. Um, and so, uh, again, we'll talk more about those uh, corporate structures in a little bit. Um, Forest Laboratories brought out a new form of Namenda called XR, extended release. It allows the individual to take the medication once a day instead of twice a day, and that certainly is an advantage. And there's more total medication um, getting into the person uh, in a tolerable way, and so that certainly is an advantage of the XR form. However, 
uh, it was announced that as of August of this year, the 5 and 10 milligram forms would not be produced any longer, and the only form of Namenda that was available was the XR form, either in 7 milligrams or 28 milligrams. Normally, a person would start at 7 and and then build up to the 28 milligram dose. Complicating things is that the company under-supplied or under-manufactured the Namenda XR 28 milligram dose, and consequently, people that have been on Namenda uh, are having a hard time coming up with the Amenda, the Namenda from a pharmacy. So that basically is the problem right now. People that have been taking the medication are finding the XR. 28 milligrams not available, and the 5 and 10 milligrams uh, immediate release forms are uh, no longer being sold. So that's quite a dilemma for some people. To help us to discuss this, we have once again today our friend Dr. Trista Bailey, who is with the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Pharmacy, where she is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice. Her specialty is geriatrics. She also consults to long-term care facilities. Uh, she holds informational sessions over geriatric-related topics on a regular basis. And um, Trista, I have to tell you, I'm delighted that you're willing to come back on the program again. I hope that I'm not wearing you out. Welcome back to the program. Good evening. Thank you for having me back. Well, Trista, what uh, what are you understanding right now about um, how much of the 5 and 10 milligram immediate release is available? Well, it really depends on the pharmacy right now. Um, there was a shortage bulletin that went out to all the pharmacies, and it's available online if you were to Google it as well. Um, but as of now... All products of Namenda, so both the immediate release and the extended release, as well as the Namenda solution, are all on back order. So whatever you are available to get um, is, is whatever stock they have left. Meaning, when, you, when your pharmacy, you go to Walgreens, CVS, grocery store to get your medications, they actually, it goes through two or three different channels before it actually comes to where you pick it up. And so, um, typically, a pharmacy will get their their supply from a wholesaler, and the wholesaler is what actually gets the supply from the manufacturer. So, it goes through several different steps before it gets into your hands. So, whatever is available coming in your pharmacy is whatever was on stock from the wholesaler. The wholesaler can no longer order the medications from the manufacturer because there's not, everything's on back order. So, are they producing fives and tens immediate release, or are they no longer even manufacturing those in the U.S.? Yes, they are manufacturing those in the U.S. So the original bulletin came out back in February. Um, it was a dear healthcare provider, dear patient letter, um, saying that they were going to discontinue the immediate release available August fifteenth. They had this very big push, and it was actually a very successful push for the company because many um, patients and uh, providers were proactive and just basically did what the company wanted them to do and switched all their patients to the XR version. Well, that's whenever the manufacturer realized that they, that they didn't have enough supply of the XR version to 
meet the demand, the new demands of, the, of what their patients were getting. And so um, they have since renounced that August 15th date, and they're still continuing to, to make the immediate release. So for now, they've changed August to fall of 2014. We're not given an exact date yet, and so it's very nebulous. But as far as what the manufacturer is communicating to the pharmacy and the pharmacist is that, yes, they're still con- making the immediate release available. Now, I am hearing that the backlog is uh, 6 to 12 months. And I don't know, I don't have a reliable source for that. What are they uh, considering to be the backlog right now? Honestly, your guess is as good as mine. The, the manufacturer is not being very open so, and basically when you make the medication, they'll have different shipments go out. So they may make, you know, 200, 2,000 um, individual tablets, and they'll ship those out to one of the wholesalers. And so it's really kind of trickling in. But they don't have an exact date, as far as I am aware of, of when their backlog will no, or will no longer be an issue. Is this an unusual kind of event in the pharmaceutical industry? Well, there's two ways to look at it. Unfortunately, there is issues when it comes to um, medications being unavailable. Um, Several years ago, they were dealing with um, certain types of anesthesia, like propofol being unavailable. And the reason why, because of that, was that uh, propofol is made from the poppy seed, and the poppy seed is, is grown. It's a plant. And unfortunately, where um, we get most of our poppy plants, they had a very dry season, and so there was a, a low supply of the poppy plants, so they had a decrease in the amount of medication available. Now, what happened, and, and you mentioned it a little bit in the introduction with Namenda, is that they, um, the company went ahead and decided to discontinue all their immediate release medications and only offer the extended release. And they, it's almost like the company sort of did this to themselves. Well, so, that makes sense. And, and a, a little bit of a back issue on that topic, you know, the patent for the immediate release would expire next year, I believe in the spring. I'm not absolutely certain. Whereas the patent for the XR form, because it's a, a new medication, it has longer patent life. And my understanding is that that patent will expire in 2025. So there are 11 years uh, available for the owner of um, uh, Namenda XR to be able to recover R&D costs and, and add to their profit and make their stockholders happy. Yes, it's actually a, a fairly common conundrum in the pharmacy world. Um, manufacturers often do this. They actually did this with um, Aricept whenever it went off patent a few years ago. So it's, it's called product hopping. And basically, the manufacturers recognize that the, gen- the uh, immediate release medication or the lower dose medication in Aricept's case um, is about to go off a patent. And unfortunately, when um, it goes off a patent, many states have an automatic rule that whenever a generic is available, you always dispense the generic unless it's specified either by the patient or the physician that they need a brand name product. So... It's very important that um, if you go and fill your prescription at 
a pharmacy and you notice it's a different pill color, a different pill shape, it's always good to ask your pharmacist, did something happen? Um, and it, one of the main things that could happen is that your the brand medication you're on became generic. So when this occurs, it's an automatic switch. So what the manufacturers, what Forrest, the manufacturer of Namendo did, is that they were going to no longer supply the immediate release because as soon as the generic came available, there would be an automatic switch. So what they wanted to do is make sure everyone was on the XR version. So when the generic did come out, then patients either had to go to the physician and get a new prescription, which could take time, and that obviously means that um, they might be on their product, the XR version, for just a little bit longer so they can, you know, come up with that money. Well, and as I understand it, you know, people did move very quickly from the immediate release to the XR form. Certainly any new patient that would then begin to take Namenda would be placed on the XR form, and people that had been on Namenda would have been transferred over to the XR form uh, before the uh, uh, the uh, immediate form was no longer available, and that would make sense. We are going to go to a break in just a few seconds here, and when we come back, uh, Tristan, I'm going to ask Just a little bit more, what do, what's the difference between a proprietary medication and a generic medication? So if you would not mind to uh, answer that question after the break, uh, I'll be grateful to you. We are going to go to a break now. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. By making some important changes in your life, you can move forward from where you are to where you wish to be. It is becoming the change you want to see. It can be a sort of experiment, if you will. On Moving Forward, Wellness One Step at a Time, your host, Dr. Serena Wadhwa, will introduce you to ideas that can help improve your health, relationships, and finances. You probably have at least one part of your life that needs improving. Make an appointment now to join us every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. 
You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to NeuroMatters. Thank you for staying with us. We are talking with Dr. Trista Bailey with the Texas Tech University School of Pharmacy. She is a a pharmacotherapy specialist in the area of geriatrics, and she is helping us to understand this situation that has come about with respect to the availability of the Namenda extended release or Namenda XR medication. Trista, before the break, we talked just very briefly using the terms proprietary and generic medications. Could you explain what those terms mean? Sure. So proprietary is also known as a brand name medication. And so those are going to be the original medication that the manufacturer puts out, like Namenda. Um, Typically, this medication is going to be available um, and as soon as they come up with the chemical compound, they'll file for the patent. Patents are usually good once a drug is approved anywhere, and it, it depends on the, how long it takes the drug to be approved. Usually once a, a medication comes on um, onto availability for you to use, it, they have about 10 years of patent available. Um, once that patent's no longer um it's expired, then typically the generic can come. So that means that the chemical makeup is actually available. So some of these generic companies come and reformulate the medication. Really, as far as the active ingredients, generics and um, brand or proprietary medications are going to be exactly the same. And the FDA requires that all generic medications that are released in the United States they are the exact same, plus or minus 5%. So if something says that it's going to be lisinopril, which is a blood pressure medication, 10 milligrams, that's the same thing as the brand name or the proprietary, which was Zestril, 10 milligrams. They have to prove that the generic has the same time of onset. So if it takes the medication 30 minutes to work, the same thing needs it needs to take 30 minutes for the generic to work. And it has to have the same length of therapy. So if the medication is supposed to lower your blood pressure for a 24-hour span, then the generic has to prove that as well. So as far as the active ingredient, that's what stays the same. Really, whenever you talk about the big differences, is going to be the inactive ingredients. These are going to be your fillers, um, your binders that keep the the particles together, all the little powder particles. Um, Sometimes it can become an issue in the extended release formulations. Um, They sometimes have different binders and fillers, so the brand name releases differently than the generic, and that actually um, makes a lot of generic extended release products recalled because they can't really prove that. Um, But as far as the active ingredient, it's the same. 
Why is the generic form of a medication so much cheaper than the proprietary or brand name form? That's a good question. So, unfortunately, there is no product capping as far as price goes, especially in the United States. So, a lot of the um, medication cost, it takes, it takes millions and millions and even billions of dollars to run years and years and years of tests on medications before it can get approved to be put on the market. So basically the reason why brand name medications are so expensive, it's the manufacturers basically getting their investment back. Um, so the, whenever... The sorry. research and development costs. Exactly. Um, so... Generic companies don't have to do any of that research and development. Um, many of the efficacy and safety um, tests that they have to do to prove are, are relatively low cost for them. So they don't have to basically make up all that extra money that the research and development of the manufacturers did. So they can sell it at a lower price. Oh. Okay. And there are people that uh, that believe with respect to this medication or that medication that the generic really does not work as well as the brand name drug. Is that valid usually or is that um, a misconception? I would say that would be more of the exception rather than the rule. Typically, most medications are the same as a generic. Now, there are several categories of medications that are um, very narrow therapeutic index, so you really don't want to switch between the generic and the brand. So if you're starting on the brand, you need to stay on the brand, or if you're starting on the generic, you need to stay on the generic. These are going to be a lot of your anti-seizure medications, um, like Phenytoin or Dilantin. Um, Dilantin mm -hmm. is the proprietary, the brand name, and that's if you're uh, started on Dilantin, typically you want to stay on that. Um, and it's because it's a very narrow therapeutic index. Um, for the most part, most brand and generics can be changed interchangeably. Now, unfortunately, certain patients do have intolerances to some of these binders and fillers. I know my dad is one of them. Um, so he was placed on Toprolol XL, XL whenever he had his heart attack, which I've talked about before on the show. And... Um, then he eventually transitioned to metoprolol XR, which is the um, generic version of what he was on, and he didn't tolerate it as well. And it was because some of the binders had an elevated um, lactose, and he's lactose intolerant. And so that was an issue that he had to go and, and stay on the brand name. So it kind of is very patient-specific, and it's more of the exception than the rule. Well, thank you for all of that clarification. Now, in the world in, in the world of pharmaceutics, you have a number of different types of players involved. You know, you have um, someone is developing a compound that they think may be helpful in some therapeutic way, and uh, that compound is is then developed, and then it goes through, as we've talked about on the program before, you know, some basic safety uh, trials, and then the efficacy trials to determine whether the the medication is actually helpful or not and uh, and then you have manufacturers often the um, the company the larger company that develops the medication will also manufacture it although not necessarily I believe am I correct there 
That is right, yes. Uh, and then you have companies that uh, make generics, and um, the, the people that make the generics, as you pointed out, do not have nearly the research and development costs involved that uh, the um, original uh, manufacturer had, although they do have some uh, costs in terms of proving that the generic is, is similar in the ways that you stipulated. So, uh, the two drug companies that we're talking about here, we mentioned Forest Laboratories, and Forest has its headquarters in New York, um, and this company spends about $1 billion per year, $1 billion with a B, in research and development for their various drug programs. Now, not I'm not talking about for Nemenda or Nemenda type drugs, but for their drugs overall, company that was founded in 1954. Well, on July 1 of 2014, Forrest was acquired at a cost of uh, $25 billion, was acquired by Actavis, which is actually headquartered in Dublin, Ireland, but has its administrative headquarters in New Jersey. Now, this is a, a big world player. This is, I believe, the third largest manufacturer of generic drugs in the world. So, this is a big player. They have products in uh, urology and women's health, cardiovascular, respiratory, anti-infective, gastroenterology, and they have their CNS, their, their central nervous system line of medications as well. And so they purchased Forrest on July 1, and of course that means they purchased the patent for um, uh, the Namenda XR as well at that point. So these are the two players involved, and uh, Forrest now is, of course, under the umbrella, under the directorship and ownership of Actavis. Um, Actavis is a world player. They, they clearly are very large, and uh, they have, I believe, 35 or so manufacturing plants around the world. So that, that sort of brings us to the question then, as you go to a real global player here, what are the standards in other nations, in other countries, as far as pharmaceuticals are concerned? If a person can get Namenda, the 5 and 10 milligram, cheaply from Canada or Mexico, for example, what thoughts do you have about that? Or if Namenda XR would be available through a foreign country. So, Trista, what do you say about that? Well, it's an interesting point to bring up. Um, our, our FDA in the United States it has one of the more rigorous processes than anything else in the world. Um, they have very, very strict manufacturing and um, development practices that they, that they uh, make the generic and manufacturers adhere to. Um, so whenever the FDA gives their stamp of approval in the United States, then we know that it is a safe and proven medication. Now, whenever it comes to Canada and Mexico, we the FDA doesn't do any kind of product testing in those because they're foreign countries. So when you do get a product from Canada and Mexico, you can't really 100% establish saying that this was exactly what it's supposed to be. And so it's you have to kind of worry about something we call um, um, trademark problems. And so that's something that we definitely need to worry about when you talk about looking at, the, at the, using medications from different countries. 
You know, Trista, um, during our break earlier, you also mentioned the possibility of receiving a counterfeit substance if you order it from another country. Exactly. So um, I know in the United States, there's actually certain online pharmacies that you can look. And what you want to look for if it's a valid online pharmacy is the VIPS. It's V-I-P-P-S. And it's um, put out by the North American Board of Pharmacy. And they go through uh, the different websites to make sure that they're a valid website, meaning that they're going to send you the medication. And the medication they send you is not going to be a counterfeit medication. That is very good information. So if it says VIPPS, that means that it has been verified that this website is associated with a company that um, is an acceptable and legitimate company that adheres to FDA standards. Correct. So I would strongly suggest not using any kind of online pharmacy that doesn't have that VIP certification. I had never heard of that before. I really appreciate you pointing that out to us. So um, medications then manufactured in another country are um, really only required to meet the standards, the manufacturing standards and the efficacy and safety standards of that country and um, to, uh, uh, to assume that a Canadian medication would meet American FDA standards or a Mexican medication would meet FDA standards is simply um, an assumption that's going to get you in trouble, it sounds like. It really, it's just a risk that you're going to take. All right. Well, we are going to go to a break and we will return shortly with Dr. Trista Bailey and this discussion of Namenda XR. So please stay with us. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. We are back, and I thank you for being with us as we talk with Dr. Trista Bailey from the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Pharmacy. Uh, Dr. Bailey is a specialist in geriatrics, and she has been helpful to our listeners in the past with understanding issues related to prescribing and uh, medications in older individuals. And we are now talking about this problem of having Nemenda XR available. And just recapping briefly uh, what I had mentioned earlier, the Namenda 5 and 10 milligram immediate release tablets were um, actually approved by FDA in 2003 to treat moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. And they've been, uh, they, they have demonstrated efficacy. They can do some good in delaying the rate of progression or how fast the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease worsen. They certainly do not restore someone to neurologically normal functioning. Um, earlier this year, Namenda XR, an extended release form, became available, and that had the advantage of once-a-day dosing. That counts for a lot, especially when there are uh, individuals with memory disorders involved. So that's a distinct advantage, and uh, I think that it was uh, uh, a good decision to go to the uh, Namenda XR, the extended release form of it. Uh, the immediate release forms uh, were then uh, to be discontinued in mid-August of this year, and everyone would have to have been converted over to the Namenda XR, but unfortunately the manufacturing capabilities or the manufacturing rate was too slow to keep up with the demand for the XR, and so I understand from uh, Dr. Trista Bailey that the 5 and 10 milligram uh, tablets will continue to be available, and the typical dose, uh, uh, maintenance dose, is 10, 10 milligrams twice per day. So that's sort of recapping what we've covered so far. Now, Trista, you talked about uh, proprietary and generic medications and the research and development costs that the uh, the patent holder has and has to recover during the patent life, right? What uh, what does it cost, and what is involved specifically in taking a medication for Alzheimer's disease or for some other form of dementia and taking it from a a uh, uh, formulation in the laboratory to an approved medication by FDA. What what all is involved in that? So drug development is actually a very interesting thing to to look at. Um, a typical drug from when it starts out in the laboratory to whatever it's on the market is about a 10 to 15 year lapse. So what we're seeing coming out on the market right now in 2014 was really thought up in a lab about about the turn of, of the century, about 2000. So it's just even more interesting to think what they're coming up in the lab now, what we'll see in about 10 years is going to be even more, um, more advanced. So what a medication does in drug development, it starts out as an idea, especially with dementia. They're trying to target 
some of the the neurological changes in your in that occur in dementia. And so with Namenda, they targeted the NMDA receptors. And what they're doing is, like you mentioned before at the very beginning, Namenda antagonizes the NMDA receptors, which um, in certain instances can cause excitotoxicity and, and too much release of the glutamate from the NMDA receptors can lead to the excitotoxicities and killing of the neurons, which can further propitiate the um, the disease progression of dementia. So um, what the d- drug developers do is they, they find a target they want to do. And they formulate it and do some animal testing. And then it goes to phase, and then from there, they, they show the FDA that this is a medication, you know, we tested it on animals, and then they can file for a, a new drug patent. And Trista, there, forgive me for uh, for interrupting here, but um, th- that would then require that there be some type of an animal model for the disease that's that is trying to be treated, right? Usually, yes. Okay. And so from there, and usually what they do with the animal models is that they they knock out some kind of gene to make them what they want the 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 model for the human being to be. And so they test that particular thing. And so from there, then they can start human trials. So phase one trials are usually started on um, healthy adults. And they try, they are determining the efficacy and usually the starting dose and efficacious dose or really the safest dose. And so they usually use healthy human trials. Um, When I attended pharmacy school at the University of Texas in Austin, um, University of Texas is a huge undergraduate population. I believe they have around 50,000 undergraduates. And uh, they were constantly doing drug development. So if you've ever gone somewhere and you've seen um, a flyer saying, you know, need healthy test subjects, you were probably looking at a flyer testing a phase one of some new medication. Um, so what they do is they're trying to determine the efficacy of it um, and determining how long it stays, the half-life of the medication, and different various um, factors that kind of play into the pharmacokinetics of the medication. That's the phase one. Phase two is whenever they test the medication on a small population of patients with the actual disease. So with a dementia medication, they'll probably take a small population, maybe 50 to 100 patients and test the medication. And really, they're starting to look at efficacy. So is the medication, we've already determined it's safe. Now is the medication going to actually work? How efficacious is it going to be? And um, really, it's the risk versus benefits. So what, what dose can we get the most bang for our buck without having the adverse effects that most medications cost? And then once that they do a phase two trial, you go to your phase three trial. Your phase three trial is going to be those big, long studies that have thousands of patients in them. And you're looking for the efficaciousness of the medication versus a larger population. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times, especially lately in the dementia world, a lot of medications have been stopped in the phase two trials because they're just not showing efficacy. So they don't make it to those phase three trials. Um, And that's what we're seeing a lot in the drug development for dementia. Um, Once the medication proves that it's safe and efficacious and they have the data to prove it, they can submit everything to the FDA 
in the United States. And then from there, the FDA decides, do they need more testing? Is it approved? And, and kind of the various stages that the FDA can approve a medication with on market. The last stage of drug development is phase four trials. And really, phase four trials are, it's not necessarily a trial per se. It's more of going to, um, whenever someone has an adverse effect to the medication, you're supposed to report it to your physician, and then your physician actually reports it um, to different systems that look at um, any problems, and that's where we get a lot of those last, uh, if a medication has a black box warning or something like that, that it wasn't originally released at. Or if a medication's recalled, well, maybe we saw something in the phase four trials or at the post-market research. So when we consider then the expenses involved in taking an idea and turning it into an FDA-approved medication, that phase three trial is a tremendously expensive step, isn't it? It, it Yes, it is. We're looking at enrolling thousands of subjects that meet certain criteria and then following them with, you know, some of whom may be on placebo, some will be on different doses of active drug, and uh, intermittently measuring the um, uh, the clinical indicators to see whether the drug is working or not. It's interesting to look at, let's say that on cold. So we go into phase three trials with that, and we want subjects, and we follow those subjects for a few weeks to know whether the medication is effective or not, even less than a few weeks, uh, perhaps even. In Alzheimer's disease, uh, in comparison to that, the time of um, having research subjects on either the active medication or the placebo is really expressed as months rather than as days. And um, so we are now looking at six to 12 months because Alzheimer's is a slowly worsening disorder. Um, so that makes the uh, expenses even higher for Alzheimer drugs. Do you have any idea how much a drug company would have invested in a drug that is eventually approved by FDA? Let's say Namenda, for example. How much it cost the research and development people to um, present all the information to FDA to get that drug approved? It's probably around in the millions. Um, yeah. And that's why it can be very frustrating for drug manufacturers that, like I mentioned, a lot of drugs fail. You see a lot of drug failure in the phase two trials. And so they've already invested all this money and time and, and years of, of research into something that ultimately proves not to be efficacious. And you don't see that till phase two trials. And uh, again, in the Alzheimer area, as we have seen in the past few years, most drug trials failed. Uh, most of the drug trials have failed. We have um, immediate relief prior to that, and we have the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, and these all passed the phase three trial that showed efficacy and, and acceptable safety. And so if a... Um, drug company has developed 10 different drugs for Alzheimer's disease, tested them all out, 
and one of them is approved by FDA and only one, that one drug has to also offset the research and development costs for all of the others, right? Exactly. And that um, that pharmaceutical company has to make its shareholders happy and has to make its um, accountants happy and things like that. So, you know, on the one hand, the the cost of medications is so high in this country and yet on the other hand the um the cost of developing the medication is so high well we are going to go to a break and when we return we will talk about vips so stay with us your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for staying with us as we talk with Dr. Trista Bailey with the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Pharmacy, a specialist in geriatrics. And Trista, as we come into this fourth segment, would you point out again what uh, people should watch for if they order medications online? So, online pharmacies, you do have to watch out for counterfeiting or giving false false medications, and that's something that's definitely a rampant problem in online pharmacies. So what the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy, which is the national credentialing agency 
um, for all pharmacy. Um, all pharmacies have to prove that they follow all um, licensing and federal requirements as well as all pharmacists have to prove the national licensing requirements made by this, this, comp, um, this group. So what they've done for all online pharmacies is that if the pharmacy complies with licensing and inspection requirements based on the state that they're located on, as well as all federal requirements, then they can get this VIPS accreditation. VIPS stands for Verified Internet Pharmacy Practice Site. And that information is very helpful. Uh, as we were talking during the break and uh, talking about the efficacy of uh, Namenda, either the immediate release or the XR form, there's certainly a whole lot more data with the uh, immediate release form. But it's interesting that when you take a, a very widespread condition such as Alzheimer's disease and bring people into a drug trial to see whether it works, I think that the drug trials consistently, even those that have uh, not continued past phase two trials, still see some patients that respond quite positively to the medications, but when you compare group averages, the medication uh, does not uh, uh, does not pan out. And uh, you had mentioned, for example, if, uh, if we're blocking that NMDA receptor with Namenda, and um, uh, in the process of doing that, trying to mitigate against or prevent or minimize excitotoxicity, it may be that um, that patients are pretty variable one to another in terms of how much excitotoxicity there is, right? Exactly. So we really see a lot of this excitotoxicity um, in, in advanced Alzheimer's or moderate to severe Alzheimer's as well as in um, some of the vascular dementias because of the oxidative stress because um, typically in the vascular dementias you have, um, you know, some kind of uh, oxygen deprivation event like a stroke or a transient ischemic attack, also known as a TIA, and that causes um, basically some of the, the excitotoxicity. So when you look at the two medications to treat dementia, you have the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and then Namenda, which is the NMDA antagonist. Um, it's been it's it's pretty common knowledge and well agreed upon that in all the forms of dementia you have a decrease in choline. So that's why those choline esterase inhibitors are very helpful because they increase. Your, your levels of choline. Really, it depends on the type of dementia and it depends on the patient if they're going to have some of that excitotoxicity that Namenda can work on. Well, that certainly does complicate and make more expensive the attempt to uh, uh, evaluate efficacy in any individual trial. Now, I'm going to ask you a hard question, okay? If you had a loved one with Alzheimer's disease and you could not get Namenda in the U.S., would you get it from Canada? And, and that's a very, very good question. I think that, unfortunately, a lot of the literature is very controversial with Namenda. Like we mentioned, it, it shows, pretty much all the literature shows that there's a statistical difference. So if you ran the numbers, they, it shows a, a difference in the MMSE, um, which or in their you know activities of daily living function. Now, where it gets kind of iffy is is if those numbers really translate 
to clinically, is my loved one going to be much different? And, and some trials have shown that it is very good and it can work. Um, I think if it was my loved one, I would definitely weigh the risks versus the benefits. If, if I noticed that, you know, my grandmother was on the medication and if she was no longer available and, and couldn't get it, if I noticed a distinct change in her behavior, then I think I would definitely try to get it from Canada. But I think I might, because I, I don't know the exact medication that I'm getting when I order it online from an outside source, I, I think that it would be worth a good long discussion with her physician and maybe a trial off of it to see if it really does make a difference. Well, thank you for answering <laughs> such a complicated question because it is a tough call. It is a tough judgment. You know, um, the uh, evidence is there to support uh, the statistical findings, uh, the statistical findings uh, stand. They've been replicated in multiple laboratories and things like that. But how much difference does that make clinically? You know, one of the um, uh, dis- one of the uh, studies with Aricept after it was approved by FDA actually demonstrated that in the sample that they looked at, which was a reasonably good sized sample, that it delayed nursing home placement 12 to 18 months. And so when you look at a more global measurement like that, we say, okay, that's worth a lot of money to government payors in that Medicaid would be paying for a lot of uh, uh, nursing home care. And so if on the average it delays nursing home placement 12 to 18 months, then we can calculate you know, at the rate of $6,000 per month or whatever it may be and figure out the savings. And of course, clinically, you know, we would all prefer to keep our loved one at home, but we don't have that kind of information for Namenda right now. And so it is difficult to make that judgment. If somebody stops taking Namenda and you see them uh, decline, will they bounce back when you restart the Namenda? Honestly, I do not know the answer to that. I would assume that it would. Um, just like with the medications, you do see a, a um, preservation of function. I wouldn't expect them, again, to be anything better than they were originally, but I don't think that it would cause any harm to be off the medication and then placed back on. All right. And, of course, that's a question that's debated quite a bit as well. And uh, and there are many other directions that this conversation could go in, but we have uh, just under a minute left for the program here. So, Trista, I want to tell you again how grateful I am to you for being available as a resource person both in this community and in those areas around the world that are reached by this radio station. I um, am very grateful to you, and I know that the uh, Alzheimer's Association is grateful to you and others that give so much of themselves, uh, their time, their knowledge, their expertise in their consulting relationships as well as their public education arrangements. So, Trista, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the program here. Well, thank you for having me. And I should point out to our listeners that she started, so it is a busy day. And uh, it's time to go home and relax now, isn't it? A little bit. With a with a six month uh, month at home at home, it's not so much relaxing. But I I have a new little one, and so she's a lot of fun. 
Well, I want to thank our listeners for joining us today, and I am working right now on a program coming up uh, that will address the issue of um, uh, patient safety through the eyes of adult protective services. So I hope that that will be an informative program in a few weeks. Thank you for being with us. Please join us again next week. Uh, This is Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. I am grateful to you for your support. Thank you for listening to Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.